Welcome to King's Cross Church. It's always such a, um, a gift for us to be able to gather in this way. It definitely is. If you have your Bibles, um, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Um, we have been distributing these to all of y'all. And um, why are you guys laughing? Why are you guys laughing? <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> uh, and we are passionate about God's word and making sure that we get the most out of God's word. And so throughout our time in the book of Ecclesiastes, we have provided these journals, not just because they look cool. They are cool, aren't they? Um, <laughs> but we have provided them so it can give you more of an opportunity to reflect and meditate on God's word. Um, I can't remember who said it, um, but it went a little something like when you are journaling and writing, um, you just capture more. Um, and your imagination opens up. And so, man, bring a pen, grab these, and not only use them on during our Sunday gatherings, but throughout the week, during your prayer time, um, as you listen and as you learn. Yeah? Cool. So we're in Ecclesiastes, and I am excited. Last week, we began our study in Ecclesiastes by reading the whole thing during our Sunday gatherings. And it was an amazing time, and it was good for us to do that because we were able to get this kind of big picture overview and get kind of like the vibe of Ecclesiastes and understand what it's all about. Now this week we begin just diving into different sections in order to unearth what God wants to say to us, all right? And so I'm going to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. Um, we're going to pray and we're going to dive in, yeah? Cool. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray. God, your word is true. What we just read are your very words. 
They are truthful, they are pure, they are powerful, and they are wise and righteous. And so God, as we read and as we study, may we see you in these words. And may we grow to love you above everyone and everything else. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, can you turn down my reverb? It started, it's, I had this weird echo as I was reading. If you could do that, that would be great. All right. So Ecclesiastes, one of the most unusual books in the Bible. Um, very mysterious, very difficult to understand. Um, the other thing about the book of Ecclesiastes is that it's often viewed as one of the most depressing books in all of the Bible. David Gibson, who wrote a fantastic book on Ecclesiastes um, titled Living Life Backwards, says this. Along with Job, Proverbs, and Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes is a meditation on what it means to be alive in a world that God made and called good, yet which has also gone very wrong, often in catastrophic ways. We face in the book of Ecclesiastes, the awful truth that nothing has meaning. Nothing matters under the sun. And the reason the book is kind of has this vibe and it's described in this way is because even though the writer of the book lived life to the fullest, okay, he had everything. He had more money, enjoyed more pleasure, and had more human wisdom than anyone else in the world. He describes life as empty and meaningless. Even though he had it all, he remained intensely frustrated and dissatisfied with life. His pursuit of pleasure in this life pulled him deep into despair. Zach Eswine has this to say about Ecclesiastes. This quote is fantastic. Listen to this. Ecclesiastes sounds like a crazed man downtown. He smells like he hasn't bathed. Looks like it too, and as we pass by, um, he won't stop glaring at us and beckoning to us that our lives are built on illusions and that we are all going to die. Although Ecclesiastes is strange and has this depressing vibe to it, it shows us more of God than we knew or are comfortable with. I was speaking to someone yesterday, and they said to me this. They said, uh, the first time I read Ecclesiastes, I was like, whoa, this is so intense. But the more I read it, the more I appreciate it, and the more it helps me grow in my appreciation of who God is and what he's done. The book of Ecclesiastes begins in this way. Look at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. We are about to spend the next 20 plus weeks studying the words, not of a prophet, 
not of a poet, but the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. All right? The Hebrew word for the English word, the preacher, is oholeth. Okay? And it refers to someone who speaks to a congregation, someone who gathers a group of people and teaches them something. Therefore, the preacher is like a pastor or minister in a church preaching, and Ecclesiastes is like one of his manuscripts to his sermons. This preacher, interestingly enough, is also identified as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This has led many to believe that the preacher, the author behind Ecclesiastes, is the great King Solomon. But others disagree. They don't believe it's King Solomon and believe the preacher is someone else. There are reasons to think it's Solomon and there are reasons to think it's not. We don't really have the time to like go figure this all out, right? You can do that in your own time. There are plenty of resources available to you online. Google, type it in. We don't have time to dig deep as to who the author is. Plus, I really don't think the exact identity of the author really matters. Why is that? In my opinion, okay, what matters, what's important, is not who the preacher is, but what he says. The words of the preacher are more important than the identity of the preacher. And I get it, the identity can help, but what he says is what we're after. And so, what does he say, and what is this book all about? Look at verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanities, okay? This right here, this verse we just read may be one of the most well-known idioms in our English language, but it also happens to be the thesis statement for the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the summary of what the book is all about and what the preacher wants you and I to know and believe is that all is vanity, Wow. What does it mean to say everything is vanity? Today, when we hear the word vanity, we think about a bathroom cabinet containing a sink. I once helped my friend um, not only move into his new home, but renovate <laughs> his, his new home. And I had to help him carry a vanity up the stairs. It was the worst experience of my life. I hate moving. <laughs> it's just not my thing. But to carry a vanity up the stairs and install it was a crazy experience. Experience, never doing it again. So when I think of vanity, sometimes I think of a bathroom cabinet and I'm like, this is crazy. All right. Also, when we think of the word vanity, um, we think of a person, right, that has an inflated view of themselves. The word vanity has many uses and meanings in our culture, but in Ecclesiastes, the preacher uses it in a totally different way. Tim Chaddick, pastor up in um, Ventura, says this. The way he uses the word vanity has less to do with mirrors and makeup and more to do with the meaning of your life. Why does he say that? Because the Hebrew word translated vanity in verse 2 is hevel. Everybody say hevel. 
Thank you. Good job. Havel means smoke or vapor. Okay? Picture the puff of smoke that comes from a cigarette or the cloud of smoke that rises from a campfire. Okay? And what's interesting is that the preacher uses Havel 38 times in Ecclesiastes. You remember, we read it last week, and if you've ever read Ecclesiastes, the word Havel, vanity, keeps coming up over and over again. And he uses it, okay? as a metaphor to describe what life is like. According to the preacher, life which he describes as a mist, a vapor, or a puff of smoke is vanity, it's fleeting and futile. Life is fleeting because we're here today and gone Tomorrow, the older I get, okay, the more I find myself saying, time flies. It so feels like we're born, we live, and then we die. And this process happens so quickly. Blink, and you're old and frail with all sorts of health issues, wearing adult diapers and living your last few years on earth. David Gibson once again says, the book of Ecclesiastes is a meditation on what it means for our lives to be like a whisper spoken in the wind, here one minute and carried away forever the next. Um, this fall, my wife and I checked in um, our youngest kid, Eden, into school. Um, and that is it. Like We don't have any kids at home during the, the week. Um, it's crazy. And as I checked her in, she was freaking out, by the way. She hated the experience. Um, and she's getting there. She's getting better each day as it goes along. But man, we checked her in to school. And we're like, gosh, like, when did Eden, okay, our little baby girl, get to the point where she's walking or reluctantly walking into class with a big school bag? Um, when did that happen? Life goes quickly. Yesterday, my son, Jesse, um, started his, um, his soccer career, I would call it. Um, <laughs> that's what I, I see it that way. Um, his first game, and I was there watching him thinking, man, I remember when I was nine years old in London, um, playing my first game of football, and I used football intentionally, all right? I'm mixing it up here, um, <laughs> and I remember, um, and it just feels like it was only yesterday, you know, when I had my football boots, I had my socks, my baggy shorts, and I was running about, and now I'm a dad watching my son do the same thing. Time flies. I wonder if you feel the same way. I wonder if you're aware of this reality. I wonder if life feels like a vapor or smoke. I wonder if life feels like it's ending the moment it starts. Life is not only fleeting, but life is futile. Hevel doesn't only refer to smoke or vapor that appears, then quickly disappears. It also refers listen to this, to the impossibility of trying to grab hold of smoke with your hand, okay? If you've ever tried to grab hold of smoke, you understand that that task is impossible, 
okay? Smoke is impossible to catch with your hands. Any attempt to grab hold of it makes it disappear. And so, by saying all is vanity, the preacher is not just helping us see how short life is, but he's also helping us see how futile life is. It's meaningless. And life is futile because whenever we try to gain control of our lives by what we can understand and by what we can do, we soon discover that the control we try to gain always escapes us, just like how smoke escapes our grip. Tim McKee, the Bible Project guy, says this, there's so much beauty and goodness in the world, but just when you're enjoying it, tragedy strikes and it all seems to blow away. Many of you know what, what it's like for life to suddenly take a turn for the worst. Life was going good, life was normal, and then tragedy strikes and it all seems to blow away. Life is futile. It really is. Forrest, Forrest Gump described life like a box of chocolate because you never know what you're going to get. It's my best oven. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's how he described life, famous saying. But the preacher in Ecclesiastes comes over and describes life as hevel, as vanity. It's here today and gone tomorrow, and it's plagued with much weariness and frustration because life is futile. It's unstable and uncontrollable. The preacher doesn't stop there. He has more to say about the futility or the hevel that is life. And he continues with a rhetorical question. Look at verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Big question, rhetorical question. The word gain refers to the human desire to show a profit to be in the black, and this can relate to finances or not. And so the essence of this rhetorical question is this. At the end of your life, what will your surplus be? What will you leave behind that will count as a lasting monument to all your efforts? What dividends... Does working hard really pay in life when all is said and done? And that's the big question. The big question is, why? Why, why are we working so hard? What are we working for? And if we're brutally honest, okay, brutally honest, and we do some soul searching and we think deeply about all the things that we're working for, what we'll discover is that we're, working for nothing. From a life of hard work here on earth, people gain absolutely nothing. This is why, because all we gain are brief moments of joy. 
we work extremely hard. And because of this, we don't even have time to enjoy, all right, the fruits of our labor. And the only time we really have time to enjoy the fruits of our labor, it's when we retire, okay? And at that point, when we retire, we're old and we have all sorts of health issues and we can't even enjoy all that we've worked hard for. Why do you work so hard? Why are you trying to climb the corporate ladder? Why are you working for that promotion? Why are you doing those extra hours at work? What are you trying to gain from the many hours you invest in your work? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Jesus had something similar to say. He said in Mark 8.36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Very interesting. From verse 4 to 11, the preacher answers his question. And he does so with a poem. Um, verse 4, the beginning of the poem is all about the cycle of generations while the earth remains the same. Look at verse 4. It says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Put simply, what is this saying? It's saying that the earth will probably outlive you. Unless Jesus returns... You're going to die, and guess what? The sun will rise and set, and the palm tree in your neighborhood will outlive you. It will still be there, and it will sway with the wind and wither some branches several times in the year. An old generation dies, and a new generation is born. But the earth stays the same. Um, Jerome, who was a 4th century theologian has this to say, what's more vain than this vanity, that the earth which was made for humans stays, but humans themselves, the lords of the earth, suddenly dissolve into dust. The preacher then gives three examples from creation to communicate the cyclical nature of the earth. All right, look at verse 5, 6, 7. It says, The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow, where they flow again. In these verses, the preacher highlights three examples of this 
endless cycle in nature. The whole of nature is characterized by tedious repetition and routine. The universe feels like it's stuck in an endless cycle that never really reaches the goal. The sun rises and sets, rises and sets, rises and sets. The wind goes around and around in circles. The water flows forever into the sea. It's all the same as it was and as it has been. And the sobering thing about all of this is that our human experience is similar. Okay? This is why. In verses 8 to 11, it's really interesting, the transition, okay? Um, The preacher moves from the natural world to human experience, and he does this because he sees the same thing that he saw in nature. And that is, things are done over and over again without any real profit or genuine progress. You don't believe me? Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Sounds similar to what we just read about the ocean and the wind and the sea, right? All right, here, right, the preacher gives three human behaviors that mirror the daily rhythms of the sun, wind, and sea to help us see the impossibility of becoming completely satisfied. David Gibson again helps us here. He says, people are like the insatiable sea. Just as water pours into the ocean again and again without ever filling it, so the things of the world pour into human beings via their eyes and ears and back out through their mouths, and yet they never reach a point of complete satisfaction. What's going on here? What's this all about? If you've not caught it, this is what's happening. We cannot say enough words to find meaning in the midst of this sameness of life. Our eyes will never be able to see it all. There will always be more sights to see, experiences to take in, videos to watch, okay, um, and pictures to look at. What about our ears? Our ears have never heard it all, okay? There will always be more gossip to spread, more songs to hear, more jokes to listen to, more posts to share, and more quotes to retweet. Our desires are never completely satisfied, and this makes a lot of sense because the reason for our unsatisfied thirst to say more, see more, and hear more is because everything we say, see, or hear is Hevel. It's vanity. Just as the sun rises and sets, we're here today and gone tomorrow Like the wind, we go from here, there, and everywhere seeking satisfaction. But like the ocean, our senses are fed and fed, but never filled. How are you guys doing? Doing well? It's good. Just wanted to check in. 
the preacher continues to drive this point home in verses 9 to 11. Look at verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. We have an incurable ache in our hearts for something new and fresher and better. We just do. We have a longing for something that will break the constant repetitive cycle, something to say or see or hear that will be new and give us meaning. But to our disappointment, no such thing exists. There is nothing new under the sun. Look at verse 10. The preacher carries on. He asks a question. He says, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? And he answers it. It has, already, it, it has been already in the ages before us. <laughs> so, all right. You hear something like this, and you're like, okay, Solomon, whoever you are, okay, just gave it away. I think it's Solomon, by the way. <sighs> Some people read this and think, what is he talking about? There are plenty of new things in the world, like advanced technology, new gadgets, and ongoing medical discoveries. What about all of these new inventions, we ask? What about the digital revolutions? Surely that's new. Surely planes and iPhones didn't exist in the first century, did they? Of course not. iPhones, whatever, weren't around in the ancient world. The writer of Ecclesiastes probably didn't have an iPad or a ballpoint pen or anything like that. But when the preacher, listen carefully, says what is new is not truly new, but it's actually old and has been already in the ages before us, this is what he's trying to communicate. There is nothing new we can ever discover to break the cycle and satisfy us. People continue to search for answers to what makes life tick or fulfill their soulish needs apart from God, and they keep coming up empty. Again, David Gibson helps us here. He says, when we conquer our solar system, humanity will then try to conquer the galaxy beyond it. We never have our fill and that basic human impulse that led us to space in the first place has been already in the ages before us. Again, Tim Chaddick commenting on this whole thing says, technology comes and goes and new advances arrive and change the way certain aspects of our lives play out. But people are the same. The medium of film may be relatively new to history, but great actors are not. While our costumes change, often the story remains the same. Nothing is new. Our pursuit of new understanding, new ways of thinking, new modern technology has done nothing to change or satisfy the cry of the human heart. In all of our searching, we, dis we, re we re 
rediscover that the soul needs, our needs for the human race has never changed and never will. We may come up with new words to define those things, but ultimately there is nothing new. Why do certain things seem new to us then? The next verse answers that question. It tells us that the reason we believe many things are new is because our memories are faulty. We forget. Look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later, later things yet to be among those who come after. The preacher says there will be no remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. In other words, we forget what happened in the past and in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. Okay, the other day I said to my son, do you know who Michael Jackson is? He goes, Michael who? Right? The other day, I literally was watching a Justin Bieber video. Okay, I was. Um, yeah, he's got good music. Um, and he was doing, he did like a Christian concert, and there was a song, and I was listening, and, you know, my two daughters came, and they started listening. And I was like, guys, that's Justin Bieber. Okay, and I think he just became a Christian. They're like, who's Justin Bieber? Right, we laugh, but this is a reality of things, okay? Like, we just don't remember. The generations will come, and everything we remember now, in 10, 20 years' time, that generation are not going to remember anything. There is no remembrance of former things. As we think about how life is fleeting, the futility of life, repetitive, mundane nature of life, we're responding in two ways, responding in several ways. We're thinking, gosh, this is so true. And I relate to this. I totally agree. And our other response is, yeah, whatever. That was his experience, but that's not really my experience. I love life. Life doesn't seem to be going fast and flying and all of that. Life is great for me. Whoever you are, however you're feeling, I want to point out something really interesting that I intentionally overlooked just to come back to it to help us really begin to understand the meaning of life. And that is in verses 3 and 9 of chapter 1. Um, they contain a phrase um, that we just cannot overlook. And so go back to verse 3. Okay, it says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils? Where? Where? Now go to verse 9. It says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new. Where? 
this phrase right here is one of the keys to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. This phrase comes up over and over again. And it's key to understanding Ecclesiastes because it points to the fact that the reason life can be described as vain is because it's lived under the sun. The only reason life is short, life is futile and mundane and dissatisfying is because of where it takes place. Where? And to view life under the sun and live life from an earthly point of view is to take God out of the picture. The phrase under the sun refers to a perspective of life lived as if there was no God or a life lived independent of God. And when God is out the picture, we experience nothing but the frustration and despair felt by the preacher. Again, David Gibson helps us here. He says, if we consider life without God in the frame and look at the world as, as we see it, that is under the sun, then there is no alternative but to say that everything is a mere breath. Without God, without this perspective of a creator God who is responsible for creating you and me and everything we see, without God, life here on earth is painful, dark, and depressing. Philip Ryken helps us. He says, Ecclesiastes shows us the weariness of our existence so that we will not expect to find meaning and satisfaction in earthly things, but only in God above. The purpose of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to be seeing it over and over again as we take these 20 plus weeks to study it. The purpose of Ecclesiastes is to help us avoid the heartache and frustration of investing our lives in things that don't really matter much in the end. Okay, the goal of the preacher is to help us see that a life apart from God will lead one to reflect back on a life that has lacked purpose and meaning. A life lived without God at the center, a life lived as though God doesn't matter, or a life lived ignoring God's interests in every facet of our lives, including our work, is a life whose efforts will end in a vapor or a puff of smoke that goes up into the sky and disappears without a trace or lasting impact. All of our efforts at making a lasting impact in this world will add up to nothing without God. But with God, even those things which on the surface may seem to have no purpose to the unbelieving eye, they have tremendous significance to those who walk with the living God. 
the preacher of Ecclesiastes, this is what he's doing. He's pushing us to look beyond life under the sun. And he paves the way for another preacher king who comes along centuries later. One who not only asks the hardest questions of all, but also gives the greatest answers the world has ever known. This man is Jesus, who is the grand subject of the entire Bible, and he is the savior of humanity. Everything is vanity because our frustration is meant to drive us to Christ. And when Jesus Christ becomes our all in all and we submit our lives and the point of our labor to, our, um, to Jesus, our Lord, and seek to honor him in all that we do, then there is true satisfaction in our souls. This life is futile. Death is unstoppable, and one day you will come face to face with death. You will. But in a world full of grave plots, one grave is empty, and there is one man whom the dust cannot claim because God would not allow the Holy One to see decay. Jesus is free from the curse and he graciously offers that freedom to you, says Daniel Aiken. Have you been trying to find meaning in something or someone other than Jesus. Where have you been placing all of your hope? As we explore the book of Ecclesiastes, this is the prayer for myself and for our church family. We're praying that we may look to Jesus for meaning. And as we do, may we wait with expectation that Jesus will bring significance and meaning to our life that exists here under the sun. Let's pray. We love you so much. Thank you for helping us understand that our lives, even though are fleeting and futile in Christ, we can have hope. And our life could take on a meaning that lasts beyond us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.